If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. You'll find that on page 939 if you're using the church Bible. We are starting a new series today, um, arguably and probably without argument, the greatest book in the Bible, the most important book in the Bible. I think you'll come to understand that after the next year and a half or two years as we go through this book. It is Um, It has been the most significant book God has used in the church throughout the New Covenant era. And so we are beginning a series on the book of Romans this morning. We're looking at Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at that introductory section, verses 1 through 7. So as usual, I encourage you to have a copy open and reading along there with me. Um, And before we do, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless as we start in on this series and make us attentive and give us hearts that are ready for the reception of the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have breathed out every portion of scripture, that it is your very word that the Holy Spirit has inspired it and that he continues to speak through it. Father, we thank you especially for this book. We thank you for how lives have been changed by it. We thank you for how you have changed some of the greatest lives in the history of the church through the preaching of this book and the reading of this book. We pray that you would make us eager to learn from you, that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, that the roots of this church would grow deep in the gospel and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Our God, we pray that you would send out your word with great power this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be in this place and that he would be doing the work that you alone can do in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We pray that you would help us, O God, that we would tremble under your word and that we would receive it with meekness and joy and love and perseverance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 7. There we read these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I've already noted, this is the first of probably about a year and a half or two years that we're going to work through Paul's letter to the Romans. It is so great a letter that Sinclair Ferguson has described it as the Everest of Paul's letters, the Everest of Paul's letters. Martin Luther said this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament, and Martin Luther knew that by experience because Martin Luther was a man who God singularly used to fuel the Reformation as he preached through Romans and as he grappled with how am I to get rid of the weight of the guilt of my sin under all of the religious obligations that had been imposed on him under a false system of Christianity and as he preached through the book of Romans and God 
opened Luther's eyes and he saw gloriously the gospel of justification by faith alone. Luther was a man who was transformed and used to fuel the Reformation all across Europe and even into North America and throughout all the world because of the preaching of this book. And it's interesting, I've always thought it was interesting, that it's a book written to the Church of Rome, the very church that had perverted the gospel, and out of which Luther, as he preached the letter to the Church of Rome, written not by Peter but by Paul, discovered the gospel of justification by faith alone through Jesus Christ alone. And as he preached that, this is what Luther said. He said, we find in this letter the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know, the meaning of law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how we are to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. Paul bases everything firmly on scripture and proves his points with examples from his own experience and from the prophets so that nothing more could be desired. Luther essentially is saying that this book is so great, this letter of Paul to the church in Rome is so great that everything you need to know for Christianity is squarely founded on it. And the goal over the next year and a half is that you would grow in your knowledge of Christianity. Hopefully you'll walk away and say, you know, I didn't know Christianity was this great. I didn't know it was this rich. I didn't know it was this deep. I didn't know all of the things I had in Jesus Christ. I didn't know God was like this. I didn't know all of how rich and wonderful Jesus Christ is in his glory and in in the establishment of his saving work in the world. I didn't know all of this. I sometimes wonder when I hear Christians downplay doctrine. Um, Sometimes think to myself, that's a man or woman who has never sat at the feet of the Apostle Paul and read the letter to the Romans because it is impossible, it is impossible to read this book as a believer, to put yourself under its teaching, and to walk away indifferent to all of the various doctrinal nuances of Christianity. It is a book that ought to change you. It was a book that changed some of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was converted as he heard, take up and read, when he heard the children saying, take up and read, and he heard that verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, out of Romans chapter 15, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and Augustine was converted. It was a book that impacted some of the greatest saints in the history of the church, so great that one of the greatest ministers ever in the history of the church, Martin Lloyd-Jones, spent 16 years of his 30-year ministry preaching through this book. Every Friday night as he had opportunity for 16 years, he retired just short of finishing chapter 15. And so it's my hope that as we come to this book that you're going to be drawn in in a magnificent way and you're going to come out on the other side a transformed and changed person by it. Well, notice when Paul comes to introduce this letter. It's actually um, the lengthiest introduction that he has in any of his epistles. It's a 93-word introduction, and Paul, um, as he does, usually introduces himself there in verse 1. And we have a tendency, I think, to sometimes look at these and think that this is something indifferent, that, okay, I get it. Paul, writing to the Church of Rome, let's just get on with it. And it would do us good to put the brakes on a little bit and to understand that there is no word wasted 
from the pen of the Apostle Paul or the one who helped him pen this letter to the Romans, that every word is pregnant and full of meaning. And so in the first place we're going to see this morning, we're going to see that Paul wants you to know that he has been separated by the gospel. Notice there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it's important that Paul write this because in the first century, as there are today, there were many, many, many people who claimed to be apostles. There were many people who were false apostles who claimed to have some apostolic authority that they could come into the church with and have influence with. They claimed to be prophets and prophetesses. They claimed to be apostles. And Paul is a legitimate apostle. And interesting, so often in the New Testament, the legitimate apostles were treated as illegitimate And the illegitimate apostles were treated as legitimate. Something for you to ponder as you think about true gospel ministry, how you relate to true gospel ministers. So often, the true gospel ministers are despised and the false gospel ministers are revered. And so Paul comes with this and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's apostolic ministry doesn't come from himself. He wasn't a self-appointed apostle. He didn't decide one day, I'm going to become an apostle. Paul was set apart on the Damascus Road. Jesus met him, blinded him, brought him to his knees, gave him a new heart, commissioned him, called him, sent him, said, you are going to the nations. You are going to proclaim my son. You are going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul tells us at the outset that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I want us to think this morning about what it means to be a servant, a slave. In the Greek, it's literally a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul was, Paul was set apart to be a slave of Jesus. Paul had been a slave to sin. I think that's true for all Christians, not just the Apostle Paul, that The common Christian experience, if you're a believer, is that you were a slave of sin, now you're a slave of the Lord Jesus. I think it was Lloyd-Jones who drew that helpful analogy that if if you're in love with someone, you're essentially a slave to that person. You want to spend your time with them, you want to have conversation with them, you want to do for them, you want to love them and show them that you love them, You, you want to give your life to them. You are essentially a slave to the one that you love. And that's the best way to think about what had happened to Paul, and it's the best way to think about what happens to Christians. If you're a Christian, your mindset ought to be, I have been set apart to be a slave of Jesus Christ. That means what I do with my time, my money, my energy, my conversation, with the totality of my life, my thoughts, everything, ought to be to be well-pleasing to Jesus Christ. And there was nobody, there was nobody in the first century church of whom it could more rightly be said that his life looked like a life of bond servitude to Jesus than it could be said of the Apostle Paul. He gave his back to be struck, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was mocked, he was beaten for the gospel, he was persecuted, he had mob lynching for the gospel, all so that people like you and me could hear the good news about Jesus Christ because Paul was grateful to have been delivered from what he was into the arms of Jesus. I think it's also interesting when we consider separation to the gospel that notice Paul says here in verse 1 that he was set apart or separated for the gospel of God and then he tells us essentially concerning his son Jesus Christ. Now, when I went to seminary, one of the things they often 
tried to press into our minds was that um, you ought not speak about yourself too much. You ought not speak about yourself too much. And I understand that. There are lots of men that preach themselves, they preach their churches, they preach their ministries, they preach their vision, and it's all about self, and it's about their church, and it's about them. And the Apostle Paul, though he speaks about himself at certain places and his experiences, is a man who doesn't take one step forward without driving people straight into the arms of Jesus. He doesn't take one step forward in his letter without driving people straight into the arms of Jesus. Paul, in a sense, if you could envision this, was a man who said, I want to hide behind the Lord Jesus in everything that I do so that when people hear me and see me, they see the Lord Jesus, they understand that I am here to make him look great, to proclaim his glories, to proclaim what God has done through him. And so notice that Paul tells us he's a servant of Christ Jesus, He's been called to be an apostle. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. And now as he begins to explain his ministry and what he's going to say throughout this book to the Romans, notice what he says secondly. He tells them about the preparations for the gospel. Notice this in verse 2. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David and declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, what's important for us to note is that Paul is not giving you anything new in this book. The really wonderful thing about Romans is that it really is the most magnificent inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Every time Paul goes to explain a doctrine, he explains it from the Old Testament. If he comes to explain justification by faith alone, he does it by going to Abraham in Genesis 15.6. If he comes to explain any doctrine of Christianity, anything about Jesus, anything about the Trinity, anything about the church and the purposes of God in the world, any glorious blessing that you get in Jesus, he goes back and he proves it from Abraham or David or somewhere in the Old Testament. And what we're meant to see is that God throughout all of the Old Covenant era and through those thousands of years, those 4,000 years from Adam and Eve and that first promise in Genesis 3.15 was making everything ready for the proclamation of the gospel once Jesus Christ came into the world. And that Paul is not giving you anything new. He's not making up new doctrine. Everything he says coincides and harmonizes with what God had already prepared and had done. Now it's interesting to me that Lloyd-Jones asked the question, why did it take 4,000 years of preparation for Jesus to come? Why did God wait 4,000 years to bring the Messiah? Why does Paul have to say it was promised beforehand and that this long period passed? And the answer that Lloyd-Jones gives, and I think he's right, is that God wanted men to know the severity of their sin. And when you think about the long ages, all the rebellion of Israel, and you see all the corruption in the hearts of men, and you see all of the depravity and all the wickedness in the world and all the awful effects of sin in the world, that we would be a people that cry out, how long, O Lord, until you deal with the corruption that's in my heart? 
and that we would understand the severity of unrighteousness and that we would see that though God is a God of patience and that though he passed over those transgressions and he let men continue on as it were, that we see the gravity of sin before a holy God, that we see that God hates all sin and all unrighteousness and that he sent judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon judgment through the ages until he finally sent his son who took the judgment on himself. And that as we look at that whole Old Testament era and as we look and we see Israel always leaning toward entropy and always spiritually declining and perverting the church of God. Think about that. The church of God always, always declining. The response should be, what is God going to do to fix this? How will this ever be cured? And the Apostle Paul says, listen, it's cured in the gospel. It's cured in the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, that even as Israel rebelled, and this is the important point, even as Israel rebelled throughout those thousands of years, God was raising up prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them a redeemer is coming. The seed of the woman will come. Yes, it took 4,000 years for the seed of the woman to come. It took 4,000 years for the woman, Mary, to give birth to Jesus. It took 4,000 years for God to fulfill that. But all along the way, he was telling us in Psalm 22 that he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Isaiah 53, that he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In Micah, he would tell us where he would be born, that he would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah, he would tell us that the virgin would conceive and, and give birth to a son, and we would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that prophecy after prophecy after prophecy were pointing us, God is going to come in the person of his son, and he's going to redeem for himself a people. And Paul essentially says, all of those preparations were for you to be confident that the gospel I now proclaim rests squarely on the scriptures. I think it's also interesting that when you look at the book of Acts and you look at Paul's ministry and he goes into the synagogues week after week after week, Luke tells us he went in And he reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Week after week after week after week. Paul didn't tell stories. He wasn't funny. He didn't have a comedian sense of humor. He didn't entertain people. There was nothing attractive about Paul. He was a short, ugly, beaten man who went into the synagogues every week and reasoned with people that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures of the Old Testament. And let me say this this morning. That is what gospel ministry is. That's why every week we preach the scriptures at New Covenant so that you are convinced more and more of who Jesus is and your need for him and that you are grounded more and more and more and more in the word of God until you're in glory. And so Paul would have you know that even in the preparations for the gospel, God was preparing it by giving us the scriptures, the holy scriptures about Jesus and giving us those prophecies I think it's also important for us to notice here, thirdly, what Paul says about the message of the gospel. You know, the word gospel gets bandied about all the time. Gospel-centered churches, gospel this, gospel that, gospel this, gospel that. And I bet if you polled the majority of people who are members in churches in America, they could not tell you what the gospel is. I know one of you told me this last year they would ask people in our area, 
who go to churches in our area, what's the gospel? And people would say, um, the Bible? No, the Bible is not the gospel. The Bible reveals the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the announcement of what God has done in Jesus. It's not anything that you do. It's not about anything that you do whatsoever. It's not about you trying to be a good person. It's not about you turning and reforming your life. It's not about you trying to do the right things. It's not anything about you. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ, outside of you because of your rebellion for your redemption. The gospel, Paul sums up, is the message of Christ, crucified, buried, and risen, according to the scriptures. Crucified, buried, and risen according to the scriptures. I want to read to you um, what Lloyd-Jones says. The gospel is not something we do. It's a proclamation and announcement about something that God has already done. And notice this, he says, it ought to be impossible for us to use the very word gospel without bursting forth into a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. I want to say this this morning. If you think the gospel is anything that you do, you will never have joy in your heart and you will never have power for change in your life. If you have confused in any way the good news about Jesus Christ for you with anything you are called to do, you will never break forth into joyous singing when you hear the gospel. Gospel means good news. Um, I had a friend that used to say to me all the time, um, telling people what they need to do according to the Bible, and God does tell us a lot of things we need to do, telling people what they need to do according to the Bible for their good is not good news, it's good advice. There's a big difference between good news and good advice. Good news is that God has sent his son to bear your sins so that you can have eternal life through what he did in his own person, on the tree, in the tomb, in his resurrection, for your redemption. And so notice that Paul says, and as he begins to unpack the message of the gospel, I love this, notice verse 3. He says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is very tricky. Not everything that Paul writes is easy. Peter will tell us that. Many things Paul wrote were difficult. There are many, many people that think all Paul's giving you in verse 3 is the two natures of Jesus. He was born according to the flesh, the Son of David. He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the resurrection. And yet I think while that's true and while Paul's going to tell us that all through this letter, he's going to tell us in Romans 9.5 that Jesus is God over all. Romans 9.5. Christ is God over all. Paul everywhere is going to give us this Christology of Jesus' two natures in one person. He is man. He is God. He is God and man in one person. Paul is everywhere going to tell us that. But I think Paul is telling us something much richer about the gospel in verse 3. Notice there is a sort of transition. Notice what he says in verse 3. The gospel revealed through the scriptures is about God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was an Israelite. He was appointed the king. He is the long-awaited promised Messiah. That's what Paul's saying. He is the Christ. He became man to fulfill all of the prophecies 
He took on himself all that God intended him to, and he did that for us and for our redemption. And then notice, verse 4, there's a shift. There is a, a shift in the existence of Jesus. And notice carefully, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, what, what Paul is telling us, I think if I can make this very simple, is that Jesus came in weakness. He was born under the dominion of the law. He was born under the, the power of sin, though he knew no sin. He was born into a fallen world as the second Adam, as the son of David. He was born according to the flesh. He was born in weakness. He didn't look like God. He didn't look like the Son of God with power. He didn't look like a majestic, divine, infinitely powerful God over everything who gave all men life and breath and all things. He looked like a weak and frail man. In fact, Paul will tell us in Romans 8, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But then what Paul tells us, and this is the magnificent thing, is that in the resurrection of Jesus, when he stepped out of that tomb and he was glorified, he was shown to be and manifested to be the Son of God with power. He burst the gates of death, and Jesus brought in the new age. He brought the new creation with him. He brought the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people. He ushered in the age of the Spirit. He is now the head of a redeemed humanity. And that means if you are in Jesus Christ, you are in the most powerful being in a human form ever in the history of being. Jesus stepped out of the tomb and he was the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness through the resurrection of the dead. And that means that what you and I enjoy now is life under the all-powerful, glorified Lord Jesus who lives and reigns, the one who said at the end of the Gospels, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now, the question is, didn't he have all authority? If he was God, he had all authority and power. And the, the answer is, in the Gospel, he had to humble himself and lay aside his right to all authority and power. But when he burst the gates of death and the resurrection, when God the Father raised his son from the dead, he became and was manifested to be the son of God with power. Think about this. I want you to think about this this morning. The Christ that you trust, the Christ that you are in, if you are in him by faith, is a man who has all the power that only God should have. I want you to think about that. If you are in Christ, you are in union with a man, just like you're part of humanity, descendant of Adam, you are in union with the most powerful man that has ever existed, and he has all the power and the authority of God. And what I think the Apostle Paul would have you know by saying these things is, you have everything in Jesus Christ. It's good news because you are united to the person who is himself the good news. He is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. You have resurrection, life, and power in him. 
In fact, Paul will say this. Later in this letter, he'll say, what the law could not do, so any effort you might have in trying to do good and reform and, and, and advance in life and do, do certain things, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, and then he raised him up, and he poured his spirit out on you so that you have Christ living in you, so that everything you need for life and godliness in this world and the world to come is in Jesus, who is the Son of God, with power. Now listen, the majority of people sitting in churches never hear that. The question is, do you believe it? Do you wonder at it? Are you astonished by it? And are all your hopes and aspirations and desires rested on that? Or are they resting in something else? Are they resting in, in um, desires for success? Are they resting in desires for pleasure? Are they resting in, in any other aspiration in life? Or are they resting in you understanding more of what you have in Jesus through the gospel? Listen, we haven't even tasted a fraction. We haven't even tasted a fraction of what we have in Jesus. Not even the smallest little crumb from Jesus. I'll say this this morning. The most aged saint in this room hasn't even tasted a fraction of what is theirs in Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul would drive you, drive you on into the arms of Jesus, drive you on in understanding that he's the son of God with power, that you are part of the new creation, that you have been raised up with him, that you have everything in him. And then notice, finally, Paul tells us here in the final verses about the purpose of the gospel. What's the purpose of the gospel in the world? Why is Paul going to Rome? Why is Paul going all over the known world? Why are we here talking about the gospel in the world in Richmond Hill, Georgia? Notice that what Paul says here in verse 5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all Nations. The purpose of Paul being separated, the purpose of the gospel being prepared, the purpose of the message shaped and formed by Jesus Christ is that the gospel would go to the nations. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The Bible is supremely a book about God being on mission. That's why we talk about mission. We don't want churches full of people just to have churches full of people. We don't want churches full of people to have a bigger budget. We don't want churches full of people because it makes it look like we're going somewhere substantial. Those are all wrong reasons to want to be part of a full church. We don't go to churches, let me say this, we don't go to churches that are full of people just to have a church that attracts people whose lives are not being changed by the gospel. We want to see churches full because the purpose of the apostolic ministry and the preaching and the message of Jesus is that the gospel would spread, notice what Paul says, for the obedience of the faith, that is, that men and women would trust in Jesus, that they would come to know him, that we would learn to be obedient to what we've been called to be and redeemed to be, and that, notice this, he says, for the obedience of the faith, for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. Listen, this is revolutionizing if you'll get this. God does not care about you being great. 
God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cares about his name being great. I'm often convicted of this when when we have opportunities to share the gospel and we don't. It's not so much that we're failing to be um, productive personally. It's not so much that we're failing to be personally as fruitful as we want to be. When we fail to share the gospel in those moments when people deny it, when we have an open door and we stare it in the face and we fear man, the greatest thing that we're failing, we are failing to bring glory to the name of God who created all men. We are failing to bring glory to him. We are failing to say to people, the God who made all the earth, the beautiful gardens that we're going to see out here, the God who made everything by the word of his power, does everything for the sake of his name. And he sent his son for the sake of his name. And as the gospel goes out to the nations and men and women are redeemed, the name of God is exalted and glorified. The name of God is magnified. The nations are converted. God gets glory. People get redeemed. The gospel spreads. Jesus gets exalted. And God gets praised for all eternity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. That Paul will climax in Romans chapter 11, and he'll say, oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom, the unsearchable wisdom of God. Who has, known, who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways past finding out. And yet God has revealed to us his purpose for us is to be in the world to bring his name glory, and to see the nations converted. As a pastor, I can't change men's hearts to be gripped by that. God has to do that. Um, That happens, that happens as you understand who Jesus Christ is and what you have in him. It happens as you understand who the Son of God is, when you get what the gospel is, what the good news is, when you understand the majesty and holiness of God, the wrath that you deserve, the justice of God. I want to read to you as we close this, because I think Luther got this. That's why we're sitting in a Reformed Presbyterian church. We, we have the Protestant Reformation because God the Holy Spirit gripped Martin Luther's heart with this. Luther says, we find in this letter the richest possible teaching about what a a Christian should know, the meaning of law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. Um, It's my hope as we go through this letter that you will grow in your knowledge of all those things, that they will grip your heart, and that above all things, you will become obedient to the faith for the sake of God's name, for the evangelization of the nations, that you will be zealous. You know, I want to close with this. If we come to church, and all we do is just hear a sermon and go out and do what we want and forget about it, we are not getting what Paul's writing. I'm not saying this out of frustration. I'm saying this out of conviction. If we come to church and hear a sermon and we say, okay, that was nice, and we go out and do what we want and we're not witnessing to anybody and we're not seeing anybody brought to Jesus, we're not telling anybody about Jesus, there's something that we're not getting in our hearts about what Paul is writing in this letter. 
I'm not going to leave us on a nice, happy note. I'm going to leave you thinking about the call. You who have received Christ Jesus, are you understanding the purpose of the gospel that you have said you've believed? Are you understanding why God has set you apart the way he set the Apostle Paul apart to bring glory to his name for the spread of the gospel to all nations? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need so desperately to have our hearts gripped by your Son and what you've done for us in him. Every one of us needs to be transformed by that gospel. We thank you that the gospel is the pronouncement about what you have done in Jesus Christ for us. We pray that you would remove dullness and blindness. We pray that you would remove complacency. We pray that you give us a great vision for the spread of the gospel in Richmond Hill and the surrounding areas and throughout the world. We pray that we would be a church motivated by the great truths of Christianity, that, Father, you would change us, starting with this message, that you would change us and that we would be conformed and transformed and empowered and that your name would be exalted and that you would give us boldness for the spread of the gospels in the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.